Welcome to Recollections. Could you describe to me what you're holding? I am holding a shadow box containing a wingtip collar or a winged collar that allegedly belonged to Uncle Dave Macon. Today, we're talking to musician and researcher Corbin Hazlett to learn more about an item in our collections, a wingtip collar that may have once belonged to entertainer and musician Uncle Dave Macon. We talked to Corbin to learn more about Macon and what his collar could tell us about the culture of old-time and early country music. Hello, folks. You know, I've been picking and trying to pick a banjo for 40 years or more. I used to just play the imitations, but now I'm going to give you a little of the variations of Casey Jones. He was an artifact. That was part of his mystique, if you will, and part of what drew audiences to him. He was a musical and cultural holdover all the way into the post-World War II era. Born in the late 1800s in Middle Tennessee as David Harrison Macon, Uncle Dave Macon was an old-time banjo player and entertainer. From the 1920s through the 1940s, he was a darling of the country music show, The Grand Ole Opry, with millions of listeners hearing him on their radios every week. And, like Corbin said, part of his appeal was that he was a kind of anachronism, a throwback to earlier eras. For one thing, he had a huge repertoire of banjo-playing styles that had mostly disappeared by the early 1900s. Uncle Dave was born in 1870, so, you know, he was learning music from listening to people who probably served in the American Civil War, uh, who could have even been born in the 18th century. Macon grew up learning songs and performance styles from vaudeville theater and minstrel shows, both of which were essentially the pop entertainment of the late 1800s. He also used vaudeville-style comedy and showmanship in his Grand Ole Opry performances. He wasn't just a musician. He didn't just get up in front of a stage and play music, sing a song. He was all about the presentation, the shtick, the show, the joke, the body movements, the whole nine yards. And I mean, that was just, that was what performance was in his time in the late 19th century. Macon would perform all kinds of tricks with his banjo, twirling it over his head and flipping it under his legs. And like other entertainers who grew up before the use of microphones, Macon would move all over the stage as he played. Even when condenser microphones became a standard at the Grand Ole Opry, stagehands would have to follow Macon around with mics because he refused to stand in one place. Oh, down trouble the fine old man, I watched his face in the frying pan, I only dead with the wagon wheel, died the dude digging his heels. The other aspect of Macon's performance that caught the attention of Opry audiences was his old-fashioned form of dress. Uncle Dave would pretty much all the time be wearing a three-piece suit with a vest, a club hat. He'd be wearing a winged collar with a silk tie. The audiences who listened to the Grand Ole Opry over the radio couldn't see Uncle Dave, but the announcer would always make a point of mentioning Macon's club hat and his Gates Ajar collar, which was Southern jargon for a winged collar. To say a Gates Ajar collar, that immediately would have evoked for the listener this bygone, turn-of-the-century, 1890s, Victorian-era uh, image of, you know, like more of an upper-class man uh, wearing this Gates Ajar collar. 
For Grand Ole Opry audiences, Macon's old-fashioned dress, his style of playing, his vaudeville comedy, and his minstrel songs all made him a kind of endearing symbol of 19th century culture. So, Macon, like other old-time and country performers of his era, also came to represent a kind of nostalgia that had racist connotations. Recorded commercial country music itself, as well as personas such as Uncle Dave Macon's, were preservation of, obviously, older white culture and some older African-American cultures, but also this hearkening back to a quote-unquote more wholesome society, which really was, you know, a more white-controlled society. In many ways, the Grand Ole Opry promoted white musical cultures while downplaying black contributions to Southern music. The show had only one full-time African-American entertainer from the 1920s to the 1940s, a harmonica player named D. Ford Bailey, a close friend and touring partner to Uncle Dave. At the time of the Opry's popularity, other entrepreneurs were actively using old-time and early country music as an attempt to repress other forms of African-American music. If you think about Henry Ford uh, in the early and mid-1920s, he was putting on these huge fiddle and dance competitions throughout the Southeast and the Midwest, trying essentially to combat jazz music as this popular phenomena and to try and bring these white traditions back to the forefront of pop culture. Ironically, all these different presentations of old-time and country music as white forms of entertainment did not reflect Macon's own experiences as a musician. He learned from African-Americans and um, white members of the community in rural central Tennessee. So he had a, a really diverse background of who he was learning from and the potential styles he was learning as well. Macon's broad knowledge of banjo playing techniques was a direct result of the fact that he had learned from black and white musicians in his youth. And his life is an example of the deep influence that African-American playing styles and songs had on old-time and early country music. Corbin values that Macon's numerous playing styles are a musical time capsule, a kind of amalgamation of many different artists of the 19th century. He just made a massive amount of recordings over such a wide span of his career, playing everything from classic banjo of the 1880s and popular music to some of the grittiest knockdown old-time claw hammer banjo playing. You know, he left just a wealth of different ways of playing the banjo. Uncle Dave's Gates Ajar collar is connected to the complex symbology that Macon embodied during his life. It's been used to evoke a sense of nostalgia for the antebellum South, but also to evoke memories of music making that largely disappeared with the advent of commercial recording. Corbin is currently completing his thesis, a study that includes notations and descriptions of the many different ways that Macon played the banjo. We ended our interview with Corbin playing a bit of Macon's version of Casey Jones. Recollections is a production of the B. Carroll Reese Museum, a unit of the Center for Appalachian Studies and Services at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Lynch Thomason, with assistance from the staff at the Reese Museum. You can find us at etsu.edu/recollections, and remember to subscribe to never miss an episode.